You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I was planning to open this week's show talking about a Broadway musical, but probably not the one you think. I was going to talk about Assassins, the 1990s Stephen Sondheim musical about the men and women who have assassinated or attempted to assassinate American presidents. Nothing should be read into this. I have listened to and enjoyed Assassins under Democratic and Republican administrations alike because it's a great show. And like I said last week, it's important that we make time even now for art and music and pleasure and joy. And for me, listening to musicals as opposed to, say, Watching the news right now is a necessary act of self-care. Okay, so yeah, assassins. It's all about these crazy and mostly white people who feel dispossessed and marginalized, the losers, the suckers, the ones who might have been. And some of the crazy, mostly white people in the show are deranged racists, and they strike back at society by killing the president. And it kind of felt bankshot relevant to this political moment because Mostly white suckers and deranged racists have struck back by electing a president. And so I wanted to open today's show by playing a little bit of another national anthem, one of Assassin's best songs. Listen, listen. There's another national anthem playing, not the one you cheer at the ballpark. Where's my prize? It's the other national anthem saying if you want to hear It says bullshit, it says never, it says sorry, loud and clear, it says listen By the end of that song, the other national anthem is playing in the ballpark And it almost works as a metaphor, like I said, for this political moment But, you know, not quite Because what Donald Trump is singing, what he has been selling and what he seems to have sold It isn't some other national anthem. It's our original national anthem. It's our original sin as a nation, and it's been playing in our national ballpark for most of our nation's history. And it says racism. It says sexism. It says xenophobia loud and clear. Another national anthem really hit me uh, earlier this week after I cycled through all my Sondheim musicals and my acts of self-care this week. And, like, the times we're living in, the song just feels so fucking ominous. And it's a song that inspires deep feelings of dread. But that feeling, dread, it isn't exactly in short supply at this moment. So yeah, on second thought, maybe Assassins isn't the musical we need right now, and another national anthem might not be the song I need to share with you right now. Because what we need right now is inspiration. What we need is courage. And we need examples of courage. We need to be motivated, to take action, to rise up. And that brings me to Mike Pence and the musical you probably thought I was going to talk about at the top of today's show, and you're right. The vice president-elect went to see Hamilton on Friday night. That's the smash hit musical about Alexander Hamilton, an immigrant and one of our nation's founding fathers. As you're probably aware, Pence was loudly booed when he entered the theater. Not by the multicultural, multiracial, straight and queer cast, but by other members of the audience, a.k.a. people who had the connections or the cash to get tickets to Hamilton. Donald Trump had spent the week packing his cabinet and White House staff with deranged and infamous racists and anti-Semites, 
you know, here's a pro tip for you, Donald. If the KKK and no one else is praising your cabinet picks, you're doing it wrong. Anyway, at the end of the show, after the curtain call, Brandon Victor Dixon, the actor who plays Aaron Burr, stepped forward to address Mike Pence. Dixon asked everyone in the theater to pull out their phones and record the statement he was reading on behalf of the whole cast because the cast wanted to spread far and wide. I wasn't at the show myself, but I am going to pull out my podcast and do what I can to help spread the word far and wide. Vice President-elect Pence, we welcome you and we truly thank you for joining us here at Hamilton and American Musical. We really do. We, sir, we are the diverse Americans who are alarmed and anxious that your new administration will not protect us. Our planet, our children, our parents, or defend us and uphold our inalienable rights, sir. But we truly hope that this show has inspired you to uphold our American values and to work on behalf of all of us. All of us. Bravo, bravo, fucking bravo. The right is, of course, spinning Dixon's comments as disrespectful, and Donald Trump pulled his tongue out of Vladimir Putin's ass long enough to demand that the cast apologize to Pence, and he called the show overrated to boot. And that's, you know, bullshit on all counts. The show is amazing. Nobody can get a goddamn ticket. And Dixon asked the audience not to boo. He addressed Mike Pence, a rabid anti-gay bigot in a Broadway theater, as sir, and by his title, vice president-elect. The cast of Hamilton, Dixon... They weren't rude, and they don't owe Pence or anyone else an apology. If anything, all of us owe the cast of Hamilton our thanks. Because, in the parlance of the show, they didn't throw away their shot, their chance to speak truth to power. And for that, I am, as so many other people are, so grateful. And I gotta say, last week I predicted that American cities, big, diverse, tolerant, queer, brown, forward-looking American cities that they would lead the resistance to Donald Trump. And as a theater fag, as a musical theater queen, I am so fucking proud that the theater kids, the theater kids, fired the first shot, the first loud shot of the resistance. And they fired it from the goddamn gayest place on earth, a Broadway stage. And I'm grateful not just for what they did, but for the example they set. Because you know what? Over the next few years, we are all going to have to take our shots. And to be clear, I am talking about rhetorical shots here, not literal ones. When the chance comes to speak truth to power, when the opportunity to speak out against bigotry, racism, sexism, homophobia, anti-Semitism, transphobia, xenophobia comes our way, as you know it's going to, and when the opportunity to do something about those things comes our way, we all got to be ready to do like those theater kids did last Friday night. We got to be ready to take our shot. Okay, coming up on today's show, lots of your questions. And on the Magnum edition of the show, which you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, Google's head of machine intelligence, Blaise Aguera Iarcus, came into the studio, and we had a fascinating conversation about sex robots. We talk about the coming of sex robots. We grapple with the ethical challenges they'll bring. And, of course, we talk about Westworld, all on today's show. 
Hey, Dan. I am a 20-something married woman and very in love with my husband. Um, aside from our little problem, we're actually very happy and, and have a good life together. So I guess my question is this. I have participated in my husband's kink, uh, which is specifically he's a bit of an exhibitionist and likes to be in risky situations as far as in public and things like that. Um, which is definitely not my fetish. It's not what gets me going at all, but I've been very willing to kind of experiment and give him what he needs in that realm um, within reason. However, I recently expressed to my husband my kink, which is more around BDSM, rope play, uh, spanking, possibly paddling, and he, I, I was very surprised by his reaction because he was almost a little bit disgusted. Um, not that he openly said that he was. It was more of a nonverbal communication where he just made it very obvious that it was not his thing, that he was not turned on by it. And um, so I, I even went as far as to go out and buy a crop and a rope and hope that maybe that would kind of get him um, excited and into it or at least be willing to talk to me about it. And uh, he's been kind of pulling away every single time that I've tried to bring it up. Um, so I guess my question is twofold. One, is my husband being selfish by asking me to participate in his kink but not being willing to do the same for me? And two, I, I'm wondering if this is maybe even a form of sex shaming and if there's a larger issue going on here that we need to uh, discuss and be aware of. Um, I, like I said, I love my husband. He's a wonderful man, and we have a fantastic life together. So this isn't necessarily the be-all, end-all of our relationship. However, I do feel very disrespected, and I feel like he's being um, pretty selfish in this situation, and I just don't know how to communicate that to him without it turning into a fight or um, without him feeling attacked by me. I wish I could call you back because I would love to ask you, and I can't call you back because you didn't leave a number. Everyone remember, leave a number. Maybe I will call you back and we can have a conversation about your question because I would love to ask you if I could call you back. How you reacted the first time your husband rolled out his kink. How you reacted the first time he said that he was into public sex with the risk of getting caught and the adrenaline pumping that that creates and what your initial reaction was because you say that's not your thing, but you go there with and for him. I'm wondering if your first reaction was, yay, let's go. I'm going to take my clothes off. Let's get out of this house right now. Let's go find a public place where it's relatively safe and we might not get caught, but we might still get caught. So there's that frisson of danger. Let's do it. If that was your reaction or if your reaction was, huh, or even no at first. And you had to have extended conversations with your husband about this kink and how to do it safely and how to explore his kink in a way that you could be a part of it and feel a part of it. Or if you were just totally enthused out of the gate, I imagine it was the former. I imagine it was you were hesitant to some extent and you guys had to continue having this conversation. Hopefully your husband, when you were initially hesitant, when he rolled out his kink, if indeed you were, didn't read into your hesitancy sex shaming. Right now you're reading into his hesitancy sex shaming that may or may not be at play. He may or may not be sex shaming you. He may just have to sit with this for a while and think about it for a while and circle back to you. You know, I often say to people when someone says, this is the thing I'm into. If it's not a thing you've ever thought about doing, the sex negativity that pervades our culture and our psyches, consequently, prompts us often to say, ooh, no, yuck. Ah, we like pull away from it. And the new, oh, yuck comes out of our mouths and the person that we're saying it to feels very shamed and shut down. 
without us pausing to think about what it is we've just been asked to do. We just have that, ew, no, yuck reaction when we've been asked to do something that isn't from our own kind of column C list of kinks. That isn't something that turns us on. We have this sort of instinctual recoil. It's not instinctual. It's cultural. We recoil. And often when we recoil from someone in a moment like that where they're making themselves vulnerable and disclosing their kinks, they can be really wounded by that recoiling. And so I try to I encourage people, don't say no, say oh. Don't say no. Oh, oh. Because oh extends the conversation. Oh says, tell me more. Oh says, we, let's keep talking about this. Let's find middle ground. You know, imagine if your husband said he wanted to do public sex in the middle of an intersection at 5 o'clock in the evening during rush hour, you probably would have said no to that and then negotiated backwards to a place that was public sex with the risk of discovery or being caught where the risks were much, much lower. It was much less public public sex. Maybe the same case here. And I'm giving your husband the benefit of some perhaps – I want to say grave. That's too grave. But perhaps some moderate to largish doubts where he came out with a no and a disgusted look and some silence instead of an oh. Instead of negotiating with you about your kink – he kind of made you feel shut down to this point where now where you're not engaging with him about it. You're not bringing it back up, although you did go buy some toys. And that's one way of initiating a conversation. But you need to go the other way, the other route of initiating a conversation, which is to share with him how you are feeling at this moment based on his reaction. You know, I've always been there for you and I've been there for your kink. I've laid out my kink and you're not doing unto me as I have done unto you. I want the kink golden rule to apply in our marriage and so I want to hear from you what the what the issue is, whether it's just something you need some more time to contemplate and think about, and you'll get there eventually, just as I got there around public sex, or if it's something you can't do. There are libido killers. There are some kinks that people can't do. Maybe your husband doesn't see himself as someone who could treat a woman in this way that to him reads as abusive on its face, and you guys just need to have a more informed and give and takey kind of conversation about what this kind of cops and robbers with your pants off role play means for you and how it feels for you. And it's not abuse because there is consent. It's just play. So you need to draw him out in a way that empowers him and in a way that empowers him to say no, just because you went to his kink doesn't necessarily mean, I don't mean you caller. I mean, all of us, the, the broad and general you just because you go to someone's kink doesn't obligate them to return the favor and go to your kink. You know, if their kink, is light bondage or moderately risky public sex and you go there and your kink is I want to shit in your mouth and fuck a goat. Yeah, they're not equivalent, right? Does, does, they can't just say like, fair is fair. I did your thing. Now you got to do mine, put on the goat costume and I'm going to shit in your face. You have to still have a negotiation. But the thing you can call him on is the unwillingness to discuss it because you deserve at least an answer from him about whether this is possible, whether he can do this. And if he can't do this, then you have to have another conversation about whether this is something that you are willing to go without for the rest of your life as the price of admission you're going to pay to be with him or whether he's willing to pay the price of admission himself and allow you to go to some kink play parties, get tied up by somebody else. And you can have a conversation about whether going to a kink party, getting tied up, maybe spanked by somebody else, whether that could include digital stimulation, mutual masturbation, intercourse, penetration, or not, that maybe you can just get his buy off to go to a kink party. Maybe he'll go to a kink party with you and you can find somebody else who can do this and would enjoy it and maybe model that 
or your husband and your husband can see that it's not sinister or abusive if there is consent. So you need to have some conversations with your husband, not with your sex advice columnist. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old gay man living on the West Coast. I have a question for you about ED in young men. I have a frequent casual relationship with a guy who is 20. He had told me before that he has a lower sex drive and can't always hold an erection while fooling around and just gets himself off later. When we are together, he enjoys giving oral and bottoming. And when I have tried reciprocating um, by blowing him, he starts out hard and goes soft. The only way he can keep it is if I'm not you know, paying attention or looking at it and then gets himself off uh, while we're together. I feel like he is getting the cheap side of the deal. How can I help him in some way? I enjoy what we do together, but would also like to give him the same feeling he gives me rather than, than him just having to get himself off on his own. This is not the first time I have encountered this with guys around my age. Is this something that is just normal and does happen with younger guys, or is this something abnormal? Is it normal? No, it's not normal. Is it common enough that you get this question regularly and routinely and not just from guys in their early 20s, but guys of all ages? Yeah, some guys have problems with anxiety around performance. It's very telling that when you pay attention to his erection, it goes away. Uh, and there are workarounds here. You can encourage him to talk to a doctor about erectile dysfunction drugs, which I think often in a case like this really act as a placebo. He begins to believe that his erection isn't going to go away if you pay attention to it because he took this pill, because he took this pill and then it doesn't. It becomes a self-fulfilling cock prophecy or cockafacy or something. Or you can accept that this is how his dick works and not put pressure on him to perform the way you perform, not put pressure on him to make his dick do what your dick does and not feel obligated yourself or like a failure yourself if you can't do for him all the things that he's able to do for you and just roll with how his cock works. Because sometimes just taking the pressure off, uh, relieving someone of the expectations that, that you have or that they have of their own performance and that you have of their performance, removing that pressure can make it easier for them to perform. If you're not staring at his erection, really staring, or treating him as if there's something wrong and there's a problem and you need to fix it, then he's less likely to have that problem, paradoxically. So you can roll with this. I don't think it's particular to your age cohort because I literally get this question from people of all ages, men of all ages, and their partners of all ages. I do have two recommendations, though, for things you can try for anxiety, certain strains of pot, always recommending pot. The medical applications for marijuana are limitless. There's also ye old blindfold. If he is nervous when you regard his penis, removing his ability to know when you are regarding his penis, when you are looking at his penis, just with a simple blindfold that allows you guys to roll around, allows him to do with your dick what he would like to do with your dick and allows you to glance at his dick without it evaporating. Blindfold is a pretty awesome sex toy and pretty effective for people who have that kind of anxiety around being looked at. And you can couple a blindfold with a moderately dark room and see if that doesn't help. But the most helpful thing I think you can do now and always with a partner in this situation is to not treat the way their dick works, like it's some problem that you guys have to solve together so that they can be sexually whole. If he can get himself off regularly and you are there and part of what's 
arousing and exciting him is your presence, then you are helping him to get off. You are giving him that orgasm, even if he has to uh, enlist his own right hand in the action as well. Hi, Dan. Hi, Dan. Cisgendered male calling from Canada. Um, We have a question about... And a cisgendered female partner also calling. We want to get better at hard, dirty sex. Fucking. Yeah, fucking. Um, We have a really, like, tender, um, kind of consent-based, slow sexual style. Whenever, Which is very pleasurable. Which is very pleasurable. Lots of orgasms. (laughs) But we really want to get better at uh, hard, uh, dirty sex. And that's proving to be difficult because... I have a really hard time as soon as we kind of get into that mode, you know, and we start like doing a doggy style or something like that. It, it really, it really revs me up and I'll come within like a minute. So I'd really like to get a lot better at that. Um, I mean, sometimes it helps if I've been like drinking or something like that, but uh, I want some more like go-to techniques I can use for being able to really fuck and really go fast and hard and, uh, and not come so fast. Any help would be great. Thanks very much, Dan. Love your show. When a guy jacks off, when you are a guy is fucking, there's that point, that point you reach. Actually, it's called the point, the point of orgasmic inevitability. That point that you, when you arrive at it, there's no not coming. You're going to come. If you remove the stimulation, if you stop jacking off, the, the semen's still going to come flying out of your dick or rolling out of your dick. If you stop thrusting or withdraw, you're still going to have that orgasm. The point of orgasmic inevitability. And what you need to do is figure out where that point is for yourself. Now, when you go slow, as you already know, you can uh, delay very effectively your arrival at the point of orgasmic inevitability. When you go fast, you arrive sooner at the point of orgasmic inevitability, at that edge. So edging, edging is a kink where someone will masturbate somebody else. Sometimes the other person is tied up so they can't touch themselves. They can't finish themselves off and bring them to the edge, bring them to that point just before the point of orgasmic inevitability and then remove the stimulation. And it's a form of, you know, orgasm control. It's a form of, of denial and frustration eroticized, right? And that other person, the person who's edging, the person being edged who may or may not be tied up, they're trying to figure out where that point is. And it's a lot harder to do that to somebody else, to figure out where their point of orgasmic inevitability is and come just up to it. Much easier to do that to yourself when you're masturbating. And you can do that to yourself. You can edge yourself with your girlfriend when you're rough fucking. It just means, obviously, you can't slam it for a full minute, rough fuck, in and out, bang, 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 because you're going to come. But four or five slam and thrusts followed by some deep breathing, not moving, leaving your dick where it is, followed by some gentle and then mixing those two together, the typical gentle style that you know you can last longer when you employ, scrambled together with the slamming. And that's a pretty great way to fucking get fucked, in my opinion, to mix those two things together. You don't got to be a jackhammer the whole time. You can be a jackhammer intermittently. And by doing so, you will last longer. And by doing so, you will discover through trial and experimentation, you will discover with rough sex, with hard slamming doggy style, you will discover, you will learn where your point of orgasmic inevitability rests with that kind of fucking. Just mix them together. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a 31-year-old female married to my husband for about two years. Uh, We seem to keep having the same argument over and over. Uh, I like to dress well to look put together and fashion forward. 
Well, my husband thinks anything beyond a t-shirt and jeans is too beyond his comfort zone. Uh, frequently, when we go out, he gets upset that I am, to quote him, so dressed up. Uh, he says it makes him uncomfortable to think about the men who will be looking at me, possibly thinking sexual thoughts. He also says that my clothing choice not only draws attention to me, but to him as well, because he's with me, and that makes him uncomfortable. Now, I'm not into wearing anything uh, revealing or overtly sexual, in my opinion, uh, but clearly our thresholds for those definitions uh, differ. Uh, my husband is otherwise incredibly loving and supportive, even when pushed out of his comfort zone. I'm wondering whether you think uh, that I should try to tone down my look, or if my husband maybe just needs to get over it. Uh, I've mentioned to him that I feel like his view comes from a place of insecurity, uh, but he disagrees. Um, I kind of just don't get it. Um, if you were all dressed up and every woman who saw us together wanted to fuck him, I would think that was amazing. So I just, I kind of don't understand where he's coming from. Maybe you could shine some light on that for me too. I'm going to have to take your word for loving, wonderful, and supportive because the question that you lay before me, I would reverse engineer that to sexist, controlling, isolating, abusive, monstrous. If he's a wonderful, loving, supportive husband with one peculiar hang-up, then maybe it's worth it to stick around. Maybe it's worth it for you because really, honestly, what I want to tell you is dump the motherfucker already. This kind of sexist, controlling horseshit on his part, I think, reveals him to be the opposite of everything else you perceive him to be. And that's not fair to him because maybe he is all the those things, those good things, and we are all of us masses of contradictions and good qualities and bad qualities. But as bad qualities go, you're dressing like a slut is a pretty bad accusations leveled at wives and girlfriends that they are somehow betraying boyfriends and husbands by dressing provocatively and welcoming the male gaze that they're going to get anyway, whether they welcome it or not. That's some sexist controlling horseshit that usually when you pull on that thread, the loving, wonderful, supportive sweater, the entire garment unravels and you're left with naked asshole, sexist shitbag husband or boyfriend. But if you say he's none of those things, if you say he's loving, then you got to reach in and correct this. You have to reprogram him. You have to stand your ground. I want to go out. I want to look nice. That may mean that sometimes I get checked out. You know what? You leave the house. Sometimes you get checked out. It's a fact of leaving the house. People are going to check people out, whatever they're wearing. People who just go out in T-shirts and jeans get checked out. My tits in a t-shirt are still my tits. Guys who like to look at tits, which are straight guys, most of them, are still going to look at my tits in a t-shirt. The t-shirt isn't a force field. T-shirt and jeans aren't a cloak of invisibility. Get the fuck over it. You really have to take a hard line on this. You really have to go to him and say, this is your problem, not my problem. And you need to work on this. And maybe you need to talk to a therapist about this because this is some controlling crap. And there's a, actually a body of research out there. Esther Perel writes about it in her book, Mating in Captivity, that indicates that when someone, you know, in a long-term committed relationship uh, where they begin to take their partners for granted, where the spark is maybe still there but a lot dimmer, where the passion, maybe it's still there but it's not as keenly felt, often what helps people re-experience that passion, that, that attraction, 
It relights that spark for a long-term partner is watching their partner talk to someone else, watching other people interact with their partner, seeing their partner through fresh eyes. Because that helps you see the good qualities of your partner, the good, even the good physical qualities of your partner that attracted you in the first place. can help you stop taking those things for granted. When you see someone else looking at your partner, maybe the way you looked at your partner when you first met your partner. So, yeah, you've already married this asshole. Sorry, you've already married this loving, supportive, wonderful guy with this one asshole trait. And you got to stamp that out. You got to stand up for yourself. You did not sign up for Burka. You are not his property. He doesn't get to decide who looks at you or what you wear at all times. You dress not just to please him. You also dress to please yourself. And I honestly think that you should be brutally honest with him. Sometimes I do want other guys to look at me and think I'm sexy. I think that's a healthy thing for a couple to acknowledge that for other people, a monogamous commitment is a monogamous commitment. You are not going to have sex with other people. You still want to feel desirable and not just desired by the person who is committed to desiring you for the next 50 fucking years. Cause that's desire that you can take for granted. And for a lot of people feeling desirable, feeling desired by people who are not obligated to desire them by non-spouses, non-boyfriends, non-girlfriends, non-binary friends, awakens their passion and their lust, not for those other people, but for their partner. It makes them feel like a fully sexual being. It, it arouses them. And then they take all that arousal home, they pour it into their partner. And I promise you, the other aspect of this is if he's worried about other men looking at you like this when you are dressed in a certain way, he's looking at other women. When they are dressed in certain ways with lust in his heart and he is projecting that dynamic that he must feel guilty about on some level, projecting his shit onto you. That other women dress provocatively, it draws his eyes, it inspires lust in him. He reads intent on their part into it. He feels guilty and conflicted and then he sees you go out like that and he thinks you're doing the same or you are arousing other men the same inappropriate feelings that he sometimes feels for other women. And there's this whole bullshit gendered psychodrama that informs his desire to control you when it comes to your sartorial choices. And that's a whole other issue. And it might help if you went to him and said, you know, it's okay. If you sometimes see women dressed up like I'm sometimes dressed up and you experience lust in your heart for them, I do not feel betrayed by that. That is natural. That's normal. Bring that feeling home. Whatever they awoke in you that day, bring it home and plow that into me as I will do the same. I will, some guy looks at me lustfully, makes me feel desirable. I will come home and I will pour that erotic energy stirred up in me into our relationship. I will plow that into you. But this should be okay for both of us. You can look at other people and desire them. And other people can look at you and desire you. And I can look at other people and desire them. And they can look at me and desire me. Our monogamous commitment means we do not act on those others' desires. But to take that energy that other people can gift us and give it to each other and allow that to benefit our relationship and make our monogamous commitment stronger, to go out into the world and be charged up and bring that charge home and zap the shit out of each other, that will benefit our relationship. That will make our monogamous commitment stronger. It will not imperil it. Policing each other in this way, particularly in this sexist way that you're attempting to police me, that's what endangers our relationship. Not other men looking at me with lust in their hearts. 
That's not a danger to our relationship. This shit is. And this shit stops now. Hi, Dan. Um, I am a single female, um, but I'm actually calling for some advice about a friend of mine. Um, so she's a really old friend. We've been best friends for a long time. We originally met at summer camp. We have this great big group of friends. Um, obviously grew up, went to high school, went to college, and she has her own group of college friends. Now we both live in New York, and I was so excited for her to move to New York, but Unfortunately, she has this boyfriend who we have all hated for so long. Ever since they started dating, he's off-putting, he is not friendly, he has never made an effort to be nice to any of us, he takes up all of her time, he's high-maintenance, he's controlling. So uh, about last year, around winter, she was talking about breaking up with him, and we were all so excited. Um, She was mostly talking to uh, my group of friends from camp um, because her college friends are all friends with him, and they all like him for whatever reason. Anyways, um, she eventually found an entire separate email account dedicated to him cheating on her with girls from Craigslist. She printed out stuff, confronted him, and we fully supported her uh, breaking up with him. Flash forward to three months later when she told me that she was getting back together with him. I told her that I thought it wasn't a good idea. Um, Even her parents were opposed. And I said, listen, if he pulls any more shit, I'm not going to beat around the bush. I want to be a good friend to you. And I'm going to tell you if I think that you're making a mistake. As a result, she has kept me completely apart from him for almost a year and I almost never see her anymore maybe once a month. She um, makes excuses that you know she's sick or has a stomach ache or whatever when I know that she's hanging out with him. I've been biting my tongue for so long and I hate that this stupid guy is taking over her life and having such an effect on our friendship and I don't want it to and I just want my friend back and I don't know how to confront her about it with out her leaving my life altogether. I just think he's so wrong for her. And if Craigslist cheating doesn't <laughs> warrant a breakup, I don't know what will. I get to be uncharacteristically brief in my response to you, caller. So thank you for that. Change of pace for listeners. Your friend, she's made her choice. Him. She chose him. She would rather be with him, awful, cheating, antisocial him. And without friends, then be alone, be romantically single, and have friends. All you can do in a case like that is step back. You can say, one, you can't fight for her. You can't battle it out. You can't enter into some sort of tug of war with her boyfriend. All you say to her is, I think this relationship is a mistake. You know how I feel. We've talked about this a lot. At this point, you know who he is, and you're choosing to be with him, and you're cutting me out of your life. And that hurts, but... That's your right. You can do that. When this is over, when this ends, give me a call. I will still be there for you. I will be your friend when this ends. And I believe it will end because I don't think he's a good person and I don't think he's good for you. And I think one day, because you are a good person, that you will see that and you will pull the plug on this. If the time comes when you need help pulling that plug, if he is not just an asshole and a cheater, but is abusive and is isolating you, I'm there. Reach out to me and I will help you. 
if this is indeed an abusive relationship, if you come to realize, come to see that it's an abusive relationship and you need help getting out of it, I will not be angry about the time that we were estranged from each other because you were with this guy. Call me then. Call me when it's over or call me if you need help getting out. I will take your calls then. Hey, Dan. Um, I was calling to ask advice about how to handle a pretty tragic situation that happened this week in my family. My cousin, who is uh, very young, in his early 20s, was found dead by his father in what is being labeled an accidental death as a result of um, autoerotic asphyxiation. My family is obviously reeling from this, and I wouldn't say they are the most progressive or sex-positive people, um, and a lot of them are defaulting to the narrative of he killed himself, which I guess he technically did. I guess my question is, is there a way to better address the cause of his death while still respecting his privacy and maintaining a sex-positive stance? Also, while I would hate to use my own family member as a cautionary tale, I do think this kink, especially while done alone, is pretty dangerous. And potentially more awareness is needed for safer practices, whatever they may be. Uh, so maybe you could shine some light on that as well. Thank you. I'm sorry about the death in your family. Um, I'm not sure that I would recommend stripping the more sex negative members of your family of their comforting narrative around their son or nephew's death. As distressing as it is for you and I as sex positive people to see families and and cultures be more comfortable with regarding someone as a suicide than looking at someone and saying this was an accidental death, an unintentional death. That's just, I'm sorry, true for a lot of people and a sex positive member of the family bursting in to explain to them how sex negative they're being about the loss of their son or their nephew isn't going to make them feel particularly sex positive in the wake of the death that can be attributed to a reckless masturbatory routine. So allow them to have their comforting narrative. I do think though, these sorts of deaths are deaths that we should talk about. Terry and I lost a friend last year to this very thing, autoerotic asphyxiation. It is very dangerous. And you ask if there's a way to talk about safe sex practices in relation to autoerotic asphyxiation. And there isn't, there is not. The only safe sex practice that you can apply to erotic asphyxiation removes the auto part from it, that you're not doing it to yourself by yourself, that there's someone else there. Invariably, when you hear of these deaths, and I'm sad to say as there has been more sort of talk about breath play as a kink and it has become popularized, a lot of tumblers for it. And I'm not faulting people who are into this. People have been into this prior to Tumblr. It's not the big bad internet creating kinksters, but as it's become more practiced and discussed and understood, you hear regularly about these sorts of deaths. And invariably, the person was engaged in erotic asphyxiation on their own, autoerotic asphyxiation. You almost never hear of a death in a typical breath play scene where there's two people, where there's somebody manning the gas mask, where there's somebody there to remove the bag, where there's somebody there looking out for the other person. Autoerotic asphyxiation. Erotic asphyxiation deaths, almost all of them, it's the auto part. That is the problem. And there's no way to make the auto part safe. Because the only way to make erotic asphyxiation safe is to have someone else there, which makes it not autoerotic asphyxiation. So if you are turned on by breath play, don't do it alone. 
That's the only advice that I could possibly give you or anyone else. Don't do it alone. And if you have been doing it alone and you are not dead yet, don't read into that, that you somehow picked the lock, that you figured it out, that you're in no danger, that because you didn't die the last 10 times you did this, you're not going to die this time. That's like somebody saying that drunk driving isn't that dangerous because all the other times they've been drunk and drove, they didn't die or kill anybody else. It's about likelihood. It's about percentages. It's about the degree of risk. And the degree of risk when it comes to autoerotic asphyxiation is really high. And the consequence is death, is really severe. And there's no dialing that back. I'm sorry for the loss. I'm sorry for the loss. It's, it's, and I don't understand it. As a sex positive person, I don't understand it. You know, if we attach the same shame to snowboarding that we do to sex, every time somebody died snowboarding, we would say they committed suicide snowboarding. So we're much more comfortable with that then because snowboarding is not legitimate. Therefore, a death from snowboarding is an embarrassing humiliation for the survivors. But that's what we do with sex, that if somebody has a desire that is non-normative and involves some degree of risk, if they should die, if things go horribly, horribly wrong while they're indulging themselves in that pleasure in the same way things can go horribly, horribly wrong when people are indulging themselves in the pleasures of snowboarding, people will then say that was a suicide. They're more comfortable saying that was a suicide if it's sex related. And that's sad. And I think it's unnecessary as a sex positive person. But again, circling back to my advice to you at the top of the call, leave the grieving parents alone. Let them have the narrative that they're more comfortable with in their grief. It's not your place to rush in and flip over a table in the funeral home and disabuse everyone of this fiction and address everyone's sex negativity in the wake of the loss of a child. I promise you, in the wake of the loss of a child, the sex negativity is the less important issue for all concerned. But yeah, you should talk about this. You should talk about your nephew's death. In the same way, Terry and I, after our friend died year before last, discussed his death with other friends that we knew were kinksters and we knew some engaged in breath play because we didn't want what had happened to our deceased friend to happen to our living friends who had that kink. And to a man, they all assured us that this is nothing they ever do on their own. That seems to be sinking in that it's the on your own part. That's the problem. So any asphyxiators out there, erotic asphyxiation aficionados, Never auto, duo erotic asphyxiation, group erotic asphyxiation, not simultaneous duo erotic asphyxiation. No, one at a time with a buddy who's sober and sane and looking out for you and there to make sure that you survive that fucking orgasm. That's all it really is, right? You're going for that orgasm. You want to survive that orgasm. Like mine and Terry's friend who died last year, like Keith Carradine, like others who've passed away because they were engaged in autoerotic asphyxiation, which is never safe, never safe. Hey, Dan, I'm a 22-year-old gay male from the United States, currently living in Spain. Um, I'm calling because I'm kind of having a lot of internal conflict right now regarding my career path, and I'm looking for an outside opinion. Um, right now, I'm working as an English teaching assistant in some elementary schools here in Spain. I really like it. I love working with kids. I love teaching. And 
I'm kind of thinking when I go back to the U.S., I might want to become a teacher and get my teaching certificate. But I'm having some like obsessive compulsive worried thoughts and I wanted to run it by an outside source before I make a big life choice. Basically, it comes down to a couple of things. I generally tend to find like little boys cuter than little girls. And that's like weird for me to say and, and gross to say out loud. But um, before I go any further, I just want to make it super clear. I, I'm not attracted to kids. I've never looked at any eroticized images or videos of kids. I've never wanted to. Um, I've never had any erotic dreams about kids um, or anything. I've never been attracted to kids at all. Um, I have a healthy sex life with adult men. I watch porn featuring exclusively adult men, and I have sex in real life with adult men. The second thing that kind of freaks me out sometimes is like, sometimes I'll see a little boy and I'll be like, oh, like he's going to be really cute when he grows up, which again is really gross. I feel gross saying it and it's not something that I enjoy, like I like to think, but it's just this involuntary thought. Um, such a creepy, gross thing. Um, but, and, and like, and this is so yucky, but I tend to like be a little more fond of the little boys that I think are going to be cute when they grow up. I don't treat them any differently, but that's just like my internal feeling. Um, and it's, ew, I feel like such a creeper for saying that. And then the other thing is my, like my attraction tends to be towards younger like men, older teenage guys, like 18, 19 year olds, um, and like twinky looking guys. I've never been with anyone underage. I've never pursued anyone underage, but it just all sort of compounds and makes me really like have nervous, worried thoughts. Is that fucked up? Am I fucked up? Is it more immoral of me to, to be a teacher based on what I've described to you? Am I like lying to myself? Well, you have the option of teaching in a girls' school, which will prevent you from showing favoritism to good-looking little boys. That said, I don't think you need to do that. Uh, and, you know, it sounds like you're policing yourself really aggressively for evidence of the lurking pedophile at your core, that you've accepted what a lot of homophobes will tell you about gay men, that gay men are sexually attracted to or interested in children and little prepubescent boys. And because you've detected in yourself this ability to spot an attractive male child and not want to sex that child, but to imagine that child fully grown and an adult and to tell yourself, wow, that kid is going to be a really attractive adult one day. That's not evidence that you want to now or ever will want to actually sleep with children. And you need to calm the fuck down about that. And I think that this is something that most people do and nobody ever discusses or admits to that. We see attractive children and we think that is going to be a stunning adult one day, right? People move through the world encountering beautiful children. And there's a beauty bias in our culture. We are biased in favor of symmetry and attractiveness and, and, and beauty. And so this isn't your bias in favor. So this thing you've detected in yourself, this likelihood to show favoritism to cute kids, 
that isn't your bias alone. And any teacher, anybody who works with anybody, particularly people who work with children, have to be conscious of and then push back against their own biases. So they don't show this kind of favoritism. So you aren't neglecting the children who aren't conventionally attractive or potentially as adults conventionally attractive and work against that. And you sound so up your own ass that I'm confident that you will work against that, that you will police yourself for this kind of favoritism, that you won't show this kind of favoritism. I actually worry that you may work so hard to not show this kind of favoritism that you wind up disfavoring the cute kids, but you need to chill the fuck out and indicting yourself because you're attracted to twinkyish types who are 18, 19 years old, who are adults of legal age and the body types that the advertising industry sends down the runway. They send those body types down the runway for a reason. They send kids high school age, just out of high school, 18, 19 years old, down the runways at Paris Fashion Week, New York Fashion Week. They don't send the parents of those 18 or 19 year olds down the runway. They send those barely legals down the runway because that body type is widely and broadly attractive, even though, because we're also paranoid about attractions to children and accusations of pedophilia are flung at people who sleep with adults who look boyish or girlish. We're also paranoid about that label being flung at us that we pretend that that's not what's actually happening. We pretend that that's not actually kind of a majority taste and a majority preference, not a unanimous taste, not a unanimous preference. There are people attracted to people, all ages, shapes, sizes, but it's really revealing to look who they send down the runways when they sell with sex. What are the bodies? What are the go-to bodies? The go-to bodies are not my middle-aged body. The go-to bodies are not the mother of three who nursed. The go-to body is the 18-year-old daughter of that mother of three, just out of high school. So, what should you do? You should stop looking for what there is no evidence of. You should stop policing yourself for evidence of there being some pedophile at your heart. Don't buy into the lie that was told to you about who gay men are just because you spot, you can see male beauty. You can see the beauty in adult men, including the adult boyish men that you're attracted to. And you can see the beauty in children and male children. And that doesn't make you a fucking pedophile unless you want to fuck those children and you don't. As for a teaching career, yeah, keep your mouth shut about this shit. If you're really concerned. If there's more going on than you let on in your call, and I'm not saying that I think that there is, but if you think that there is, discuss this with a therapist or a counselor at great length. Really unpack it. But if there's nothing here besides you can see the beauty in boys and you're attracted to boyish adult men with no desire, no sexual desire, no sexual impulses directed at prepubescent underage males, then this is not a problem. Just don't show favoritism. Stop digging around in your psyche, trying to find the pedophile who isn't there. Just make sure that if you do go into teaching, if you're not working at a girl's school, that you're not playing favorites based on looks and be a little kinder and gentler with yourself. Hi, Dan. This is a 26 year old bisexual man in New York uh, with a somewhat strange question. 
Uh, watching the HBO show Westworld, I've been thinking, if there are hyper-advanced sex robots and you were to have sex with one, would that be cheating? I mean, isn't it just like a really fancy sex toy? Or is there some other component, like if you had a commotion, emotional connection, it means something else? I don't know. What do you think? Joining me in our studio today to help tackle this very important question about robots, Westworld, and AI is Blaze Aguera y Arcas, who is the head of Google's machine intelligence effort here in Seattle. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Dan. I'm really honored to be here. So I think we can dispatch with the question pretty quickly and get to the more interesting conversation about artificial intelligence and sex robots, which is it's cheating if your partner thinks it's cheating, period, the end. I guess so. I mean, the philosophical question there is whether cheating is about what's happening in your own head or it involves something happening in the third person's head or it's about something happening in your partner's head. Right. And sometimes people have definitions of cheating that what's in the partner's head can be irrational and then you have a crazy partner on your hands. There are people who think masturbating is cheating, which it is not. And at what point does masturbating become cheating when you're talking about, you know, if you're masturbating just with your right hand, maybe that's not cheating. Some people feel looking at pornography is a kind of cheating, a a sort of infidelity. That's what Dr. Phil says. And when he says that, he's revealing himself to be an idiot that you should not listen to. But then, you know, if you put your dick in a fleshlight and think about – the person you, whose orifice you wish that was, are you getting closer to cheating if you duct tape that flashlight to a toaster, which is getting closer to robotics in some small, <laughs> tiny, thin step of a way? Uh, but at what point does it become infidelity? I, have you watched Westworld? I have. I watched one episode and I, and I was thinking the whole time that I was watching it. It was, after, it was after, I, after I heard this question. I was thinking the whole time about these Talmudic questions about when it becomes infidelity and I, I have no idea what you know whether there's any any seemingly fully sentient robots that right. you can't tell are human or not human it's part of the fun of the first couple of episodes of westworld is at first you can't tell who's a tourist and who's a robot sex bot rape bot often in that show uh, at what point does that become cheating then? right right it's kind of like the the sex version of the turing test uh-huh which uh you know what i what i find so interesting about the turing test <laughs> just broadening the definition of what is the uncanny valley <laughs> right exactly <laughs> exactly and you know it's it's uh it's a profound question i mean i i don't i, I mean of course everybody knows that turing was gay mm-hmm. and in some sense the whole idea of the turing test was about passing and about what it means to pass and uh, and so i think it's it's profound uh, and so if it could pass for a human and be imperceptible from your partner and seem to have agency and seem to have desire and will, even if that's programmed, maybe then it becomes cheating. Maybe then it's not a flashlight duct tape to a toaster with googly eyes on it. Maybe then it's partnered sex. Well, people are really skilled at projecting emotion and projecting agency onto other things, whether they're people or inanimate. I mean, there, there's a the really people famous love their cars. Exactly, the people have anthropomorphized their cars over the last right. Why do they name things? Right. I mean, the the, the very one of the very first uh, AI programs ever made was called Eliza. This was from from MIT's artificial intelligence lab in, in the '60s, I believe, and it was a psychoanalyst, and it was a really simple program. It just did sort of very simple pattern matching and asked you, you know, what do you think about that? Or, mm-hmm. or how does that make you feel? And people became very emotionally attached to this simple script. And, you know, so that's, that's something that people do. So are project. we playing with fire here when we work on machine intelligence or artificial intelligence? Are we luring people away from the difficult work of interpersonal human relationships, which involve all sorts of 
I think a rational impulse is it's one of the things that's so delightful about being in a relationship is you not only have to control for your partners or, or, or adjust to and, and accommodate and love your partner around what works and what's good, but also what can seem random and illogical and irrational and, and contradictory to who they are most of the time because each of us is a mass of contradictions. Right. And so if we're working on machine intelligence and AI, are we creating people of a sort that are going to be easier and more attractive to be in relationship with? Well, I think there's a shallow version of the question you're asking, and there's a deeper one. So the, the shallower one we is about – We usually stick to the shallow ones. Right here, so. <laughs> it's, it's the subject. <laughs> well, no. I mean the shallow one is just – is about making more things that we can project onto. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, as the things that we can project onto become more and more sophisticated, then the ways in which we can trip ourselves up become more and more complicated and messy too. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure though in the in the deeper sense that – the whole thing isn't about projecting. I mean, you've, you've talked about long-term relationships as being like a, a shared a fantasy. Of, Two right. people create together about what they mean and who they exactly. are as a pair. I mean, sometimes I think that self-consciousness is also a kind of a, you know, a, a fantasy. You know, people make decisions and then they, they rationalize afterward or they you know, impute agency afterward. They create a narrative that justifies wherever they are at this moment. Exactly. And they read back into their story what they re- need to read into it or they highlight in their story, in their history, those things that seem to rationalize or justify where they're at now. I think you especially see that around kink. Exactly. I like to be, my example is always, I like to be spanked because I was spanked as a child and I eroticized it versus I like to be spanked because I wasn't spanked as a child and I was fascinated by it. You hear both spanking justifications from different spanking enthusiasts. That's right. So what's the more complicated? Well, I think we're still a long way from making machines, making AI that um, that has something like consciousness of its own. That That is where we have to start worrying about what sort of myths or what kind of consent the mm-hmm. AI has. I, I do think that eventually we probably will have to face those things. And that's that's the really that's gonna be the really Does consent thing. matter if it's a machine? Right. Like when you do those crash test dummy things with cars where you send them into a brick wall at a hundred miles an hour, did you have to get the car to sign a consent form before you blasted it toward that brick wall? At what point does do you need the consent of a machine? There's been some writing in feminist circles about the coming of the sex bots and how this is a problem because right. of consent. Because if you can program consent, then it's not consent. Exactly. And is that a legitimate sort of discussion to have around consent or is that the fetishization of consent as a concept and the elevation of consent right in a way that you know we don't ask consent of our coffee maker in the morning maybe your coffee maker doesn't like coffee maybe your coffee maker prefers tea like i do <laughs> well i'm pretty sure that i'm pretty sure that it is just projection and fetishization for any kind of machine that we make today or that we'll be making in the near future even a machine that can appear to suffer as the robots do as the humanoids do in Westworld? Well, no, maybe not. Uh, so, I mean, an Eliza script can can simulate suffering again via scripts, mm-hmm. but there must be some point at which that does change. And, you know, we, we are, I mean, if, if one thinks about the arc of human history as being one of expanding circles of empathy, you know, we, we you know, first it was just about, I don't know, about, about white men, and then it was about your you know, maybe women too. And, and everything right. outside your tribe was foreign and other exactly. and expendable and enslavable. Exactly. And Peter Singer has expanded that to animals. Donna Haraway has talked about, about non-human species in the, in the context of feminism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I, I do think that we will eventually face exactly those kind of questions. And, and I, I, I don't have any I, – you know, I, I don't know how we can answer those. So when you guys sit around at uh, Google's machine intelligence effort and you're working on all this, are you guys – do you guys talk about how everyone's going to be <laughs> fucking what you're working on in 100 years? Sometimes, yeah. That you guys are working on uh, – I've always called it the coming of the sex bots. They are coming. We are moving toward sex robots. So for me, it's kind of fun but 
also galling to watch Westworld because in a way I think uh, it, it misses the point. But we'll get to that aspect of my question, which is follow up to this. Do you guys talk at Google about we are writing, we are working on the sex bots of the future. One well, day people I, I will be to, fucking you know, our code. <laughs> I try not to make people uncomfortable or, or, to, or to break <laughs> HR codes, you know, but, but yeah, sure. I mean, we talk about, we talk about a lot of the implications of, you know, both in the near term and, and in the longer term of what we're doing, of course. The sex phobia in our culture that is so pervasive. Uh, there's so much technology that we use for pleasure. I went to a movie last night. I went to see Moonlight. It's brilliant and everyone should see it. Mm. Uh, you know, I played a game on my phone this morning while I was sitting on the toilet. Like there's all these moments where we in our lives where we interact with technology for pleasure uh and sometimes edification enlightenment i thought uh moonlight was very edifying and enlightening but mm-hmm. primarily for pleasure for diversion right and is our problem when we get to talking about sex bots and so many people have this problem is that this is sexual pleasure and that's a pleasure of a different and less legitimate sort than just the cathartic pleasure of sitting through this movie or the entertainment pleasure of playing yeah. a game once it becomes sexual pleasure are people is that does that somehow taint it? Well, there there's the problem of taint, which is about sex phobia in the West, and there's also the problem of how many how many players are we talking about? Mm-hmm. Right? If if this is all if this is all a one person exercise, then you know then then it's um, then it's just about the sex phobia questions, and it's just about you know whether whether it's whether it's I don't know uh, degenerate or or uh, indulgent or whatever. I, it's it's when you start to ask the question, you know, how many how many players are there in this scenario? You know, is there another agency? Is there another consciousness? Is there another? So maybe uh, the robot's not being wronged, but the spouse that you are abandoning sexually in favor of the perfect and compliant and supple robot, the spouse is the wronged party, not the robot. Uh, maybe, uh, but you know, people people also can have behaviors that that are their own. I mean, you've talked a lot about about the the myth of sex addiction or porn addiction, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I I, I don't I, I agree with you that that talking about about a porn addiction is is stupid, but it's also obviously true that there are people who have behavioral problems. Right, compulsion, I think, is right. a real thing that people can po- compulsively can uh, do anything watch porn. Yeah, people right. can anything can be abused. It's when you talk about a chemical addiction model. I'm helpless in the face of it. That there isn't any agency right, but or that's choice. Clear, that's there clearly wrong. That I think is is wrong. There is right. no chemical soup that porn is that infects your brain. Exactly, but but the idea that tech can be part of a compulsion or part of a part of a behavioral problem is is obvious and, and you don't need to go to looking to, to right. porn for that right i mean the, the, to look in the basements of well distressed uh, parents all over america for sure or how many times or, or that you that you check twitter first time in the morning and every 30 seconds thereafter is i know it. just nuts. <laughs> twitter is just misery inducing right. and i like last thing i look at every night is shitty shitty twitter and people being assholes first thing i look at in the morning is shitty shitty twitter and people being assholes exactly uh, the past few months my compulsively checking 538 you know every every 45 seconds is so there's other forms problem. of technological self-abuse that we already all engage right. in and of course by extension we will engage in a form of technological self-abuse when these sex robots Exactly. So when you watch Westworld and you see these humanoid robots that are indistinguishable from the visitors, I watch that and I think, yeah, no. I think it's cheaper to hire actors as Mm -hmm. HBO did. They didn't build robots. Uh, I think when I contemplate the coming of the sex bots that what sex robots are going to make possible are all the unrealizable sexual impulses and desires. The giant blue people. Ethically, uh, morally, morally. outrageous and mm-hmm. therefore unrealizable right 
child rape, right. rape, rape, which they are actually showing on HBO mm-hmm. on Westworld. But then the giant blue people. Then mm-hmm. you know you're turned on by the Avatar characters from that movie. I met somebody recently who's an Avatar fetishist. Saw Avatar when he was nine years old right. and just snapped into those giant blue alienoids. That's a, a really tragic story. <laughs> <laughs> it is because that's an unrealizable fantasy. Right. But these people who see when I think of a world populated with sex bots, I imagine fifty foot tall women. Mm-hmm. I imagine excuse me for saying this and it's crude and it's horrible and anyone out there who's suffered childhood sexual abuse, I apologize in advance. Child sex robots mm-hmm. uh, where and I imagine centaurs and I imagine lizard and snake people. Like the unrealizable fantasies are the ones right. that sex bots are going to make possible. You can always find a James Marsden actor out there who is willing to do sex work. Building a James Marsden robot is super expensive. Hiring yes. a James Marsden actor, much less expensive. Well, here we But you here can't also, find the centaur right, who can fuck the right. shit out of you. That's not out there. You're going to have to build that. I'm, and by you're going to have to build that, I mean you guys. Actually. You're talking about – I'm not sure if this is going to be in Google's business model. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, there's also a big difference between the robotics aspect of this and the AI aspect of it. Uh, you know, this is one of those things that I, I think I, I really had the wrong idea as a, as a kid about what was – coming soon and what was coming later. I mean, it's sort of like, I don't know about when you were a kid, but I thought, you know, we'd have colonies on the moon and on Mars a long time before we'd understand the brain or have AI. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that it's, it's looking like it's going to be the other way around. And with robotics, you know, we're still really far off. Robotics is super primitive. Uh, You know, there are big industrial robots that do, you know, picking and placing of, of, of engine blocks or, or little micro components or whatever, but things that look like a person and that can move with that sort of fluidity and so on, those just feel to me like they're a lot further off than, um, if you like, you know, artificial brains that can, that can do reasoning and that can do thinking. Uh, maybe even that can do these more advanced kinds of, of uh, emotional connection. Right, of emotional connection. Right. So you'll have to duct tape your flashlight, <laughs> I guess, to your phone, as in that movie. Well, they didn't do that, but in, did you see the film Her? I did. I loved it. Which yeah. uh, was Spike Jones. Uh, yeah, that was, that was uh, Scarlett Johansson. Scarlett Johansson as she did a fantastic job of the her. voice of, yeah. uh, on the phone as basically a Siri. Well, and they did, they did, they did phone sex, which, I mean, the thing is that you know, this is sort of like the way Uber is brilliantly positioned to do self-driving cars because they've already created uh, an ecosystem, an environment where the, the driver could be swapped out for a computer and, and you almost wouldn't tell the difference. You don't have to talk to the driver. You summon it with your phone. And I think in the same way – It's you know, just the cologne you would miss if the driver exactly, wasn't there. Exactly. But you know, people, people already have developed a culture of doing sexting and, and phone sex and, and so on. That, and finding uh, that very gratifying. And fi- right, and finding that gratifying. And, and given that, that's the obvious way that you know, sex robots will happen a lot sooner so the sex robot is going to be things. about the brain and an right. engagement in, in speech, in conversation. That's going to come first. You're going to get to talk to the centaur, but the centaur is not going to be in the room fucking. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. So how far along are, is centaur development? I sound like a centaur fetishist <laughs> myself. I always bring up centaurs and people now accuse me of being a centaur fetishist and I'm not. But just for the sake of argument, are you guys, how far along are you in sentient centaur AI development. I mean, again, sentient. We we are we are so far from being able to do things that have sentience or that even have anything like reasoning. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the the kinds of when, when we talk about AI or machine intelligence or machine learning today, it's about simulating the parts of brains that can do sensory processing, uh, or to some limited degree that can do things like speech synthesis. DeepMind did a did a very beautiful 
demo on on the web uh, just days ago mm-hmm. of of um, a neural network that can synthesize speech and do a much more beautiful job of it than the concatenative model that we have today, where you just you, you have you know somebody who speaks for a million hours, you chop it up into tiny little fragments and reassemble them. Mm-hmm. So those are like the very simplest parts of visual cortex or motor cortex, and you know the the thing is that that's not that's not what gives us consciousness or awareness or lets us reason there and those are all really um those are all really kind of simple processes compared to reflection and uh you know being able to reason being able to think uh having agency so yeah we're we're a long way and there's still there's still breakthroughs that i don't think we can even put a, a sort of timetable on right there are discoveries that have to be made well, end with this question. Stephen Hawking has been sort of banging a drum and trying to warn people about the coming of AI and the dangers of AI and basically invoking, for the Terminator fans out there, some Skynet coming online where we right. lose control of artificial intelligence, where we lose control of the machines. Is that a real worry? Do we need to worry about a sort of Westworld-style takeover, not just of Westworld, but of the world with the coming of AI? And you're, you're saying it's a long way off to get to that right. kind of reasoning sentient free will choice making by machines. Right. So is are Stephen Hawking's pronouncements premature? I think so. Uh I I think several things. First of all, that those existential risk ideas about about machine intelligence are really they're really distracting from the important things that we need to be thinking about with respect to machine intelligence today. Such as uh such as uh labor and uh the need for a basic income. Mm-hmm. Uh such as privacy. Um, such, yeah. right, such as um, uh, such as things like uh, you know how do we how do we think about um, the relationship between uh, devices and services and big data, um, such as bias in mm-hmm. machine learning. Uh, you know there there are machine learning systems today that that we know have all kinds of uh, gender and race and other kinds of bias built into them by the training data because the training data are the same ones that we're exposed to as a society and that give us implicit biases. Right. So those things are, you know, that's stuff we have to work on right now. And, and I, I kind of think that even if you're interested in those big existential risk problems, working on these things now is the, is the meaningful way to make progress, not philosophizing, you know, like, like Nick Bostrom has done or, or like, uh, or like Stephen Hawking has done about, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the coming of, of some kind of doomsday machine. So at what point should we worry about the coming of a doomsday machine? You say not now. Is there a point at which it would be too late to start worrying about the coming of the doomsday machine? Or you just don't think a doomsday machine arising from some sort of web-connected, interconnected worldwide AI is actually a reasonable, rational threat, is actually not plausible? Well, I think that in the broad scheme, you know, every technology that we invent can be used for good and it can be used for harm. And, and that's, that's not unique to, to machine learning. I mean, that's, that's you know, any kind of tech. Uh, hopefully, we're becoming as a species wiser over time too. And so there is this kind of fundamental race between wisdom and capability. And, uh, you know, with every step, we develop more capabilities. It's sort of like, I don't know, you're, you know, your kid grows up and, and, uh, and one day has a driver's license and, and, you know, can, can mow people down in the car. But that's not what kids do normally when they, when they learn to drive, right? Mm-hmm. They, they suddenly acquire these, these powers that are essentially positive. Mm-hmm. And I see us going through that as a species. So, you know, that's, that's not about AI. That's just about technology generally. Um, so you have faith that there will never be a Skynet. I don't have faith in anything. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not I'm a just faith trying to nail you person. down on whether Terminator 2 is going to come true. I think that it's a paranoid fantasy 
that mostly comes from old white men mm-hmm. uh, who are invested in hierarchical systems of various kinds. It is an allegory for losing control, right. losing power. And right. it's an allegory that has been crafted and created and presented exactly. by entertainment systems controlled by old white men. Exactly. Who are on some level intuiting that they are losing their power. Precisely. I mean, this is this is why uh, this is why it was the ex uh, CEO of, of Intel, I believe, who said only the paranoid survive, right? Why, you know, well, if you're the if you're the silverback, mm-hmm. you know, then then it it behooves you to be paranoid because you you only uh, you have only down to go. Will we have silverback sex bots one day in the future for the gorilla not. fetishists? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> your kink is not my kink, but your kink is okay. Just to the silverback <laughs> fetishists out there who might be listening, to the zoophiles, we don't want to shame you, but <laughs> thank you so much for coming in and talking with us about this. Thank you, Dan. This has really been a pleasure. Are you going to keep watching Westworld or does it not work for people in your field? Oh, I, I, I loved it. Okay, I, I good. keep watching it. Good. I'm continuing to watch it. I'm kind of uh, wrapped up in it. Blaze Aguera y Arcas? From Google's machine intelligence effort, which is located here in Seattle. Thank you so much for coming into the studio. Thank you for demeaning yourself and your entire project by coming on my sex podcast. Oh, oh come on, Dan. Total pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Dan. 26-year-old straight girl from the East Coast calling you. I'm wondering how to navigate the holidays that are coming up, like Thanksgiving, Christmas, etc. Usually, I spend Thanksgiving with my extended family. I spend Christmas Eve with my family at night and then Christmas day. We typically, we're not religious. So we go out to see a movie the day after we have a big family party. My partner likes to spend Thanksgiving with his family. They typically have their friends from church over. Um, He likes to go there on Christmas and then he could come to my Christmas party. But what are your thoughts on splitting up holidays or would you suggest maybe switching up every year what house you go to for a dinner or a Christmas Eve? I feel like my boyfriend's getting pretty offended that I think the idea of splitting up Thanksgiving is a pretty shitty thing, especially considering I don't see my family as much as I used to. I don't want to upset him. His family's pretty religious, so I think Christmas is a big holiday for them. But the idea of spending Christmas at like a church service or praying around the dinner table does not really appeal to me. And I love my boyfriend, so I want to make him happy. But also, I don't want to risk my own sanity. So what do you think? How should I, how should I navigate this, Dan? I come from churchy people. And there are two kinds of churchy people. And hopefully your boyfriend's parents are my parents' kind of churchy people. And those were the kind who would welcome the girlfriend of one of the sons who didn't want to attend the church service with everyone else, but who was happy to hang out at the house, look after maybe the younger kids who aren't going to be dragged to church because they're going to misbehave, or maybe get things set up for when everybody gets home, that you can be there getting the vegetables diced for the vegetable tray, that you can volunteer to stay home and do something secular and make yourself useful. You can do... What do the Christians call that? Oh, yeah, good works. Well, they're at church, jumping up and down, kneeling, praying, whatever. That said, if they're the kind of people, unlike my parents, kind of churchy people, if they're the kind of churchy people who would be offended if you skipped mass or skipped the service, I don't know, then just fucking go. Get yourself a remote control vibrating butt plug and go and sit there and entertain yourself and think dirty thoughts and just 
offer it up an hour, maybe 90 minutes tops to keep the peace. And you say you might be driven insane if there's a prayer before dinner. And I would suggest that if a quick prayer before dinner is going to deprive you of your sanity, your hold was pretty tenuous already. And if it wasn't going to be that, it was going to be something else. So my feeling is as an atheist and still culturally Catholic, but atheist from a churchy family is that you go and you roll and you roll with your boyfriend's family's traditions out of respect for and deference for and love for your boyfriend. And if he can run interference for you, if he can say, mom, dad, you know, she didn't grow up going to church and church just isn't her thing, but she's happy to hang out at the house and look after the toddler nieces and nephews who aren't going to want to, who aren't going to come, but she's happy to hang out at the house, cut the vegetables, look after the toddlers, whatever. While we go to church, maybe they'll welcome that. And if they freak out and they don't welcome that, you could stand your ground and insist and they can get used to that and you can kill them with kindness. But to suggest I can never go to your house for Christmas because your parents are churchgoers and there's going to be a prayer before dinner and I will melt like the wicked witch of the West if I hear a prayer before Christmas dinner. That seems a little intolerant, frankly. And I say that as someone who is frequently accused of being not too tolerant of people of faith and believers and Christians in particular. Go. Go to Christmas. Split up the holidays. One year on, one year off. That's how the grown-ups do it. And it won't be that hard to split up the holidays. Your family does Christmas Eve, but just goes to the movies on Christmas Day. Go to your family on Christmas Eve, if logistically it's possible. Go see his family on Christmas Day and alternate Thanksgivings. Again, that's what the grown-ups do. Hi, Dan. I've been dating a guy for about a year now, and we have a romantic trip planned for Paris this Christmas time. And I was wondering... How not to get my hopes up for an engagement ring. Um, I've been sort of dropping hints, and I don't think that's a good idea. Um, and I was wondering how you sort of just give advice to relax in a relationship and enjoy it as it goes and not take the bull by its horns and steer it the way you want. If you want to make sure there's a proposal while you're in Paris, then go buy him a ring. Get him a cock ring. Propose to him if it's that important to you that the proposal go down on your schedule and in that location. Or you could just chill the fuck out. One year. One year seems to me like rushing it. And you might want to stop dropping hints and start saying things instead of dropping hints. You might want to say to him, I'm looking toward marriage and a serious and permanent commitment. How about you? Because if this relationship isn't headed in that direction, if that's not your intent, if you're not looking to marry someone eventually, me, hopefully, particularly, then perhaps we shouldn't go to Paris or anywhere else together. That'll make you sound like a crazy person. But if you are a crazy person, maybe he needs to know that now before he gets on a plane and goes to Paris with you. Otherwise, if you don't want to queer this deal, if you don't want to ruin this relationship, if you don't want to smother this relationship baby in the crib, calm the fuck down. 12 short measly months. That's how long you've been together. I think proposals should come no sooner than 24 or 36 months. So, and it's me who called for advice. So that's what I'm going to tell you. Like at 36 months, you can call the question at 36 months. You can not drop hints, not start dropping hints again at 36 months. You can say, are you going to marry me? or Are you not going to marry me? This is my proposal. 
If we're going to stay together, if we're going to keep fucking and living together, whatever else we're doing, then it's marriage time. Then he can opt the fuck out. That's not what he wants or opt the fuck in. But if you have expectations, if you have an idea of how you will be proposed to, and if he doesn't match your unstated expectations, you will be disappointed. You need to adjust your expectations. You need to stop fantasizing about the marriage proposal that you've always fantasized about and focus on this relationship with this dude, with this guy, and allow it to go where it's going to go and stop trying to force it. But you don't want to do this Disney rom-com thing where you know you have this fantasy about a, a marriage proposal and a flash mob and he's supposed to intuit and then execute your fantasy proposal because he can't and he won't and you will be disappointed. I promise you, you will be disappointed. You're setting yourself up for disappointment because he might not get the right ring. He might not propose at the right time. He might not propose in the right way or the right place. Maybe he's not planning to propose to you in Paris. Maybe he's planning to pop the question to you in a bathroom at the Detroit International Airport. Who the fuck knows? But the longer you sit there spinning out fantasies about how it's going to be or what it's going to look like, your dream proposal... Nothing in real life matches our fantasies or our dreams. And real life is more interesting and funnier and more charming and, and more textured than our fantasies ever could be. So re-fucking-lax. Who knows? Maybe he's got the fucking ring. Maybe he took the fucking hint. Maybe he's going to make the goddamn proposal or maybe not. Either way, you got the guy. Either way, you're in fucking Paris. Take a deep breath and enjoy yourself. You're going to waste this whole trip to one of the most beautiful cities in the world if you are just waiting the whole time for the question that may not come on this trip. And I would posit at one year into this relationship, if it did come on this trip, it's too soon for that question to come. And you wanting the question to come and indeed him asking the question one year in, I would point to as evidence that neither of you are mature enough yet to make that kind of lifetime commitment. Chill the fuck out. Hey, Dan, I'm calling in response to episode 525 and the advice you gave that people who are politically divided from their families sort of sit out the holidays this year because it's better to avoid the conflict. My girlfriend is the daughter of Cuban refugees in Miami who voted for Gary Johnson this year. And she was having an impossible time relating to them both before and after this disastrous election. And so I made a suggestion that really seems to have worked for her. Instead of finding ourselves in difficult conversations or feeling like we need to wage war on our own families, which we're not always primed for or articulating property when emotions get the best of us, I recommend we do what politicians do when trying to convey a message. Write a little stump speech. When your family notices that you're withdrawn or disappointed or angry and they inquire about it, have a 60-second message prepared about what's happening that you've thought out specifically so it doesn't push more buttons, but instead makes them reflect or take you more seriously. I find it's best to incorporate a personal story. Well, Mom, I'm upset because my gay friend Steve just got beat up by a homophobic and newly emboldened Trump supporter. I'm upset because the new head of the EPA doesn't believe in global warming, and now I don't want to have kids because the world we're giving them is going to be two degrees hotter and with much less drinkable water. Whatever it is that you think will be most effective with your audience. Of course, they'll fire back, accuse us of being dramatic or out of touch. So I'd be prepared with a little follow-up, too. I hope you're right, Mom. I would love to be wrong about all the bad he can do with Supreme Court appointments and foreign policy and deportations and LGBTQ rights. But if he hasn't brought back a ton of manufacturing jobs within the next four years, or if the country isn't better off than it is right now, 
I hope you'll consider talking to me about who might be best for the four years after that, because right now, a lot of us are scared and hurting. Hi, Dan. Thanks for your rant at the top of your episode today. It's really important that everybody donate and do everything they can to stop Trump. And one thing that listeners can do, I just wanted to suggest, there is a man named Foster Campbell who is running for Senate in Louisiana. He is a Democrat because of an issue with the election, some sort of runoff. The election in Louisiana is not decided until December 10th. So I would encourage all your listeners to go to fostercampbell2016.com and donate or volunteer, even if they live out of the state of Louisiana, to make phone calls, get Democrats out to the polls. It would not give Democrats a majority in the Senate, but it would apparently flip the numbers to such a degree that it could make the Republicans uh, have to work a lot harder to pass their shitty legislation uh, that will fuck us all over. So again, fostercampbell2016.com. Really encourage everyone to donate or volunteer their time uh, if they can't donate money. Hey, Dan. I'm calling to the woman in episode 525 uh, who's assaulted and is having a hard time dating. I, too, am an assault survivor twice, like you. I think that one thing that Dan left out is that there are all these shoulds and shouldn'ts that belong to him, but one thing that belongs to you that is one of those is that you should not let him hijack the rest of your dating life. You are better than that and you are stronger than that and, and you can't let him have that because he took so much and he doesn't deserve to take that from you, too. So stay strong. Keep fighting a good fight. Stay in therapy. Um, but but know that you do have the power to take that back from him because it sounds like he's taking quite a bit of it away from you. Take care of yourself. And we're going to leave it there. We've got two live shows coming up in Seattle and Portland. The Savage Love Live Christmas Spectacular in Portland at Revolution Hall on December 2nd and in Seattle at the Neptune Theater on December 4th. We will have music and comedians and sex panels and sex toys and games and fun and you will want to be there for tickets to the Portland show, go to portlandmercury.com slash savage special. And for tickets to the Seattle show, go to thestranger.com slash savage special. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you would like to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Read my sex advice column, Savage Love, every week in the Chicago Reader and other fine alternative weekly newspapers all across the country and the world. Savage Love Cast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. I'll be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Love Cast. Thanks for downloading.